We are born free. And we will die free. The time in between, though, that's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Finding Freedom right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Excited to to bring you an interesting guest, a familiar name to those of you in the libertarian podcast circles. We're going to be talking with Chris Spangle today from We Are Libertarians fame and the Chris Spangle Show. I'll introduce him in just a moment. Before I do that, I just want to remind all of you out there, if you like this show, Finding Freedom, if you like Brian's show, Mean Age Daydream, if you like what we do on Fridays with Meme Wars, please consider hitting that subscribe button so you get this whole feed of shows delivered to your little device you carry around in your pocket, referred to as a cell phone. And if you really enjoy this show, please consider becoming a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty or lionsofliberty.locals.com. All right, so let's bring in Chris Spangle, and uh, I will introduce the man known to his huge black entertainment television audience as white boy Chris. He Chris Spangle, of course, is known probably most to this audience as from the We Are Libertarians podcast, and that's now the Chris Spangle Show. It's been going on since 2012, so a very long time. One of the uh, longest podcasters in this liberty space, if we want to call it that. Chris has amassed a, a massive amount of downloads. He has multiple other shows that he's on, one of them being Pat Down with, with Miss Pat, which I believe started in 2019 and hit all the way up at number eight on the Apple podcast chart. So very successful. And as I alluded to earlier, that has um, spun off into a, a BET show. Miss Pat settles it. So we'll talk about that as well. Chris Spangle, great to have you here, man. It is funny to say, isn't it? It's even funnier to live that white libertarian Chris Spangle ended up on BET. <laughs> it's amazing. I want to understand how it happened. I honestly do. I'm ready to get to that. <laughs> okay. I want to hear, hear the backstory on it. Chris, I wanted to have you on for a couple different reasons. I think you've had a very interesting journey in podcasting and I think you can be an example to a lot of podcasters out there about really different avenues you can take. I think a lot of people in the political space, the libertarian space get locked into, I'm going to talk about this one topic. I'm talking about libertarianism and then rehash all these talking points that I've heard other people talk about. And you've taken it but while you do that to a degree, talking current events on the Chris Bangle show, you've branched out, which I think is pretty cool. And also, you're doing some really cool stuff with projects trying to build local community around podcasting, and we'll get to that later. But before we get to that, just for my audience out there who doesn't know you, and maybe the ones who don't know your backstory and, and how you got into podcasting, if you could just start by sharing, what was your first experience with podcasting? How did you get interested in this, in this platform? 
Yeah, so it started when I was working at a radio station in 2004. Really into talk radio. Always wanted to be a talk radio show host. And then 2005 podcasting comes out on the iPod. I had an iPod. I was working this boring desk job, working part-time at the radio station, and just filling my iPod with podcasts. I still have 800 different subscriptions just to follow different shows. And I got a job as the morning show producer there, and I said to them, look, we need to get, this is 2007, we need to get in on podcasting. And our signal was like reaching 2,000 people. It was its lowest rated AM station. You couldn't hear it 30 miles north of town. This is a great way to extend the reach of the show. Now, like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It may have been 06 because the program director that was there just, he was like, why would we compete with ourselves? Because you're not competing in Fishers. You should be there. And then when he left, I started the podcast for the radio show. And it's still 15, 18 years later is one of the more memorable Things people locally will come up to me and say, I loved when you and Abdul would fight and argue. And it was just reinforced because they were actually hearing it again on the podcast. Then left there to go work for the Libertarian Party of Indiana from 08 to 12. I was there working at the the radio station going, I know the Democrats aren't it. And these Republicans, I can't believe what they just did to Ron Paul at the state convention. I'm definitely not a Republican anymore. Why aren't the Libertarians effective? Left there. I was making like $17,000, and I said to the Libertarians, can you do $21,000? Yes, I'm in. <laughs> right? So went to work there and just missed doing radio. So I started We Are Libertarians as a college outreach podcast, in addition to the Libertarian Party of Indiana podcast. And that changed the course of my life, because We Are Libertarians was just friends sitting around talking about politics. We did so much together back in the day because our shows were so similar and still are. It was really about people that feel like your friends sitting around a kitchen table talking about libertarian Mm -hmm. ideas or current events. And I still think that's like the best form of podcasting is just when people don't try to pretend and they're doing it authentically with each other. But yeah, then... There's a bunch of other stuff. The podcast helped me get my dream job at Bob and Tom, where I work by day now. I've been there a decade because growing up, you're a huge Bob and Tom fan if you're from Indianapolis. They're a nationally syndicated radio station that does comedy. And having the podcast on my resume and having that little playground of testing things out with We Are Libertarians helped me have the skills to excel once I once I got the interview. They said, oh, Mm -hmm. you're in. And there's just been so many times throughout my 20-year career where things that I learned doing We Are Libertarians helped me get jobs that I really had no business interviewing for, but it had a proven track record. And I had more experience than so many other people just because I had done podcasting and created content and hosted shows as opposed to just being a behind-the-scenes guy. Yeah. That, That just reminded me, with you talking about Bob and Tom, did you work with Pat McAfee? Did Pat I McAfee did. work at Bob and Tom? So he was the Colts punter, and they used to have a Colts player in sponsored by Jiffy Lube, and Pat was the guy that came in. And I got to know him pretty well. The first time I met Pat was 2013. It was the IRT radio show that he was doing with Tom. It's the local fundraiser where they get a bunch of local celebrities to do goofy stuff. And Pat Mm -hmm. looked me in the eye in the locker room and said, I'm going to be one of the biggest comedians ever. And he just, you just knew the dude meant it. And he always had that as his goal. He was still, 
he still had years on his contract at the Colts of playing, but he knew exactly where he wanted to take it. Then when he st- set up Barstool, Barstool Heart- Heartland, I think it was, I the Bob and Tom crew helped him get that started with a few people pitched in. I was one of those people that helped him get studio set up or early advice along with Tom's advice. But yeah, I got to know Pat pretty well during that period. And he was always so good on Bob and Tom when he'd come in. And he, I don't think I would have predicted like ESPN and dominating in every single thing in five years, <laughs> just yeah. a meteoric rise. But it, I, I was there at the, the Carmel playhouse where he did stand up for one of the first times and just destroyed, just naturally talented. It was just, yeah. it, it's, it was incredible to watch somebody go from, pro athlete knowing where he wanted to go and then mastering media too. So uh, I'm proud of him. I think it's awesome what he's done. Yeah. And not to go down a a side tangent, but not only that rise, but at ESPN, like the amount of power that he has to be able to call out his leadership, to be able to bring on Aaron Rodgers, who's saying things that the leadership doesn't agree with. And, uh, and then bring him back on after he said that that he wouldn't. And there isn't been... a place that Pat hasn't brought some WWE mentality to it. Yeah, and I didn't think it would work at ESPN, but gosh darn it, it did. And all the better, I think. It's like Stephen A. Smith. If Pat McAfee succeeds at this, it tips the favor towards talent. It's only a good thing mm-hmm. to do what he's done to take his crew. My dad actually did the construction cleanup on his new church place too weird connection but he you walk in there and it is gorgeous he owns that building he manages his staff he controls his advertisers he -hmm. has all the power that's a hugely powerful thing for talent across the board starting at the top all the way down i i wish him nothing but luck like i want him to succeed and get away with calling out norby yeah, absolutely. Bill that, Simmons a, got killed for it. Like, how does Bill Simmons, who starts 30 for 30, who's hugely powerful, get killed? I get why Jamel Hill got let go for it, but mm-hmm. Bill Simmons, it's great for Pat. Yeah, it's an interesting angle there that it's good It's good for talent. I agree with that. ESPN has gotten so stale in so many ways, and it's gotten so so political in so many ways, and McAfee's found a way to cut through that and really show what ESPN used to be about back in the day when it was entertaining to yeah. the way they presented sports highlights. But that's enough about ESPN. What I'm curious about, so you were going through your arc here as a podcaster and and we are libertarians and the success there, building out that network. At, at what point in time did you meet Miss Pat? And can you talk about your first interactions with her? Yeah, so Pat moved from inner city Atlanta and had never really interacted with white people in a significant way till she was 30 and then moved to the whitest community on earth, which is my hometown of Plainfield, Indiana, and was driving home, calling friends going, you never are going to guess how big the grass is here. And it was corn, right? So you just, it was just a total fish out of water situation. And while I didn't know her at this time, she apparently came to my brother's graduation because her oldest son and my brother were best friends 
in high school and she's like, you didn't notice six large black people in your house? I was like, no, I'm colorblind. I didn't see anything. But then when I got the job at Bob and Tom, she'd always come and hang out in the green room and we'd chit chat and we'd lie to each other and say that we'd lost weight and just had a good rapport. And then she started picking my brain around 2019 about podcasting. And I was like, you should do it. Like all these comedians are getting into it. It's obviously going to be good for your career. It's good for dates. It helps people get to know you a little better. And then she went out and visited Joe Rogan and he's, I'll have you on if you come on my podcast. If you start a podcast, I'll have you on. So she came back and she's Spangle, we got to do a podcast. Come over. I thought she was just going to ask me to kind of help her do a pilot episode. And she asked me to be her co-host. And I was like, what? Okay. I don't literally for the first year of that, I was thinking I got to get out of this. I don't like, look, to be real, the world that we've swam in for the last decade, it's very like racial conversations are easy when you just are one way right? (laughs) to be pressured and be put in a situation where you have to defend libertarian beliefs your your general thinking, your personhood, like sometimes like her and Dion challenged me a lot those first couple of years, especially, especially in 2020 when everything was crazy and George Floyd was going on. It honestly was the best thing that ever happened to me because it exposed me to tens of thousands of people that and I don't just mean race, ideology, sexual preference, sexual gender, like whatever, right? This mm-hmm. it's such a broader, wider audience than I'd ever worked with before. We're libertarians. We know that audience. Bob and Tom's very like white, older male, Midwestern. But this put me in these turbulent times in front of an audience and interacting with people that didn't think like me, didn't look like me, had different cultures. And it honestly was, it's been such a huge blessing for me to have that ability to have conversations and i think it's why i sort of went a different direction than so many other libertarian podcasters because i had two experiences it was just not just that but it was also leaders and legends where i produced this podcast interviewing the local elites the leaders of all the major nonprofits, the governmental leaders the sports leaders so like all these things that i spent 15 years arguing were bad things i now had to sit and listen to them talk about their rationale for things And it didn't quite made me think that they were right, but it made me understand that they were like people. (laughs) So those two podcasts taking a chance and going, you know what, I'm going to do a couple different things that are different, really put me on a different path than I think a lot of other people, which definitely hurt my show, caused a lot of friction with relationships from people within the libertarian community because it it seemed to get less open and classically liberal and more lockstep in certain ways through the pandemic and beyond and the Trump years. But I'm very fortunate that I had those two experiences to help broaden my horizons beyond just what we saw and what we interacted with, which I was just interacting. If you looked at the core of my audience, then it was white male, older millennial Christian conservative men (laughs) that were straight. Right. Oh, surprise. Right. I've attracted the people that kind of look and think like me. So It's been like a beautiful five years of like getting to be put in different places and talk to different people. So I'm glad I met her, but that's how it came about. Yeah, That's so interesting for a lot of different reasons, but one that jumps out right away is you talked about at the beginning, 
how Miss Pad moves totally out of her comfort zone in Atlanta and to Indiana, fish out of water, and then pulls you out yeah. of your comfort For, zone. Forces me into, into her world. Sca- terrified. You go um, back and listen to those early episodes. I'm terrified. I don't want to talk about abortion. I don't want to talk. Here's a guy who talks politics as a nice second job, terrified to argue with liberals about our ideas. And yeah. it was great because it's one thing when you're arguing libertarian ideas with other libertarians, but then when you've got to go argue with progressives, like De- Dion's a socialist. He believes De- Bernie Sanders is great. Like it, or if you're talking about racial issues, at some point you just have to go, I, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. I've got all these, I'll just listen and then figure out down the line. So yeah, it was great for me to force me to argue. So I've tried to create a space with my show where I can talk libertarian ideas and be in places that libertarians, not trying to appeal to a libertarian audience anymore. They made it clear they don't like me. I'm trying to get people to think about individualism and community in a different way. Uh, And I'm, I'm proud of that, that people who don't think about libertarian ideas feel comfortable listening to my show i think sometimes that comes across as oh that's just because you're milk toast but my goal is not to be like a hard, a more hardcore dave smith right dave's got that market right. cornered can i talk to the people that god's put in front of me for whatever reason progressives liberals you know mm-hmm. a huge diverse audience and can i make them think about libertarianism in a different way and if they, even if it's just, I think these ideas are wacky, but at least he's not a scumbag, right? Like, I know one libertarian that doesn't seem like he's a jerk because he's just beating up on leftists. So that's what I've tried to do. And it's been somewhat successful, I think. Yeah. And so many libertarians, I think a lot of libertarians have figured this out over the past five or so years with COVID and everything else that has happened that just saying, getting the government out of the way and leaving us alone is going to solve all of our problems. It's actually not going to solve all of our problems. The problems are still there. Yeah. And a a lot of these problems, they can't be solved by the government intervening. And they also can't be solved by the government being, being pulled out of it. It's human interaction that you need and being able to have those difficult conversations with people. And I, I didn't realize that that you got into such serious topics with with Pat Down. I've listened to a few yeah. episodes. I listened to I listened to the last episode when I was at the gym just today. And I had to turn it off because it was one of those awkward things where I'm cracking up <laughs> laughing and the people around me probably think I'm some sort of psychopath and you know, what the heck is this guy listening to? But you, I, I won't even say what the, what, the, what the it, it's. Was about. Yeah, I always feel conflicted because I'm a deeply Christian man on a very unChristian podcast. But I've said, God, take me out of this if you don't want me here. And He's just made me go right into other d- deeper places. Those early episodes, especially if you go back and listen in 2020, we don't know each other. I didn't know Pat on a human level. I didn't know her stories deeply. I'd read her book. When you yeah, we had COVID going on. We had nothing else to do. That was the only place I could go was to Pat's house in Plainfield. And it was like the best thing ever. It was like jailbreak, getting to go to her house. Now, I'm in Indiana. So like COVID lasted till July 4th. And then I went to Florida. <laughs> like it's different where you live, where Brian Nichols lived. But yeah, it's just about Pat has a very fundamental principle that I share, which is Let's just create space for us to have conversations that, like, you don't have to know everything, but just tell me what you think. And then we can Mm -hmm. negotiate from there. 
And I think people tend to think I need to evangelize libertarianism. Therefore, I need to read every Murray Rothbard book and know every dot and I cross every T, whatever the phrase is. Or if you're a Christian, I need to go out and evangelize and I need to read the Bible cover to cover and read all these apologetics books and understand these arguments. And I just don't think you need to do that. I think you just need to make a friend and then tell those friends what you think. And if you have disagreements, that's what Wall was always about, is finding people like Reinhold, who's more left, and Brian Nichols, who's more right, putting them in a group and having conversations. I firmly have always believed in free speech within small groups. And We Are Libertarians was always about tension. Like, I think living in tension and having conversations that scare you are good, but this pushed me beyond my comfort zone because those conversations were always still within that, like, boundary of acceptable opinion because we're all libertarian, we're all white other than Harry. This pushed me into an audience of hundreds of thousands of people hearing me have an opinion that they didn't agree with and then calling me racist on YouTube. Right. But you know what? I'm not racist. Pat and Dion know I'm not racist. I know I'm not racist. I don't care. It's just you can't deal with people's perceptions of your words. You just have to get used to it. Yeah. With with that in note, getting comments and the show taking off, take us through your mindset as you're starting to realize, wow, this show is actually gaining steam, gaining popularity. People are calling me racist. Like, what's going through your head when that's happening? Fear. Back then, especially fear. I I also met my wife in 2019 and mm-hmm. have been growing a family since that time. And, like, when I think of Chris Spangle 2015, my identity was libertarian podcaster. That's what I had going on. I had nothing else. I was a mess. I made a lot of bad decisions. I did a lot of bad content. Right? But then... Building a business, doing podcast consulting while doing the pat down, while having success with We Are Libertarians and Chris Spangle Show, while building a family. Like it, it just diversified my identity portfolio. And so it, it raised my confidence also to a point now where you just like when you seek after personal success, you don't worry so much about how people perceive you. Right. And if you, the people you're doing the content with, you're good with them. There were a lot of periods through the first two or three years of that podcast where I would call Pat or Dion and I was like, I need a gut check. Like, I know I don't ever talk about race. I never have talked about race. I wasn't going to get it right. I didn't always get it right. But did that come across tone deaf? And they'd say, no, you're fine. This person's crazy. Right. So now five years in, I know. I know where I should weigh in and where I should just be quiet. There's just the reality is there are some times where Pat and Dion are talking about something and my voice is just not appreciated or required for that. Right. And then there are other times where I want to argue about stuff. So my confidence has gone way up, especially with the TV show. And the majority of it is just like the family. Like, I don't care if any of you don't like me. I care about the seven-month-old downstairs playing with the five-year-old and the wife that I really have to answer to. (laughs) Like, the opinion of some guy with an anonymous avatar on Twitter just doesn't bother me as much as it did, but it really did five, ten years ago when I had nothing else going on. Yeah, and and congratulations on on the family. Thank Um, you. That's awesome, man. I'm happy for you. And I know one thing with having a family and being a podcaster especially like yourself, having multiple podcasts, multiple projects going on, plus 
working a, a nine to five job. Is it difficult you to difficult for you to stay organized, make sure that the podcasting, like recording this interview tonight, is not infringing too much on your family time? Yeah, I'm fortunate in that I work for a morning radio show, so my day starts early and then nobody bothers me after one or two. So I have the freedom to do a lot of interviews in the afternoon, but it is it has fundamentally changed the show and I don't think it a great direction in that we can't get together in the same way that we did. Like Harry has a a kid too, so like having everybody come over, sit around my coffee table, my kitchen table and chat. We just don't have that flexibility of time anymore. We can get together about once every month in person. So it's changed it from that panel chat show to more interviews, um, which I'm not crazy about, but it's like, it is what it is. Like I've put out a show every single week in this past year. I've been more consistent in year 12 than I was ever before. Um, And it's just about time management and discipline. Like, making sure that you are responding to everything, not procrastinating, making sure that you are all the different stakeholders and all your different projects are happy, not happy, but at least you're getting people what they need. You're being communicative. Like in some ways it's made me such a better employee being busy because instead of just 2015 where I didn't have anything, but one show every month and then a job and I'd go home and just watch TV, maybe play Mario Kart Like now I've got so many different responsibilities and people that depend on me, including clients, other podcast hosts that I do shows with, my wife, their family, her family, my family. It makes me a better man because I have more responsibility on my shoulders. So Mm -hmm. I have to be more proactive. I don't have time to play video games. I don't have time to waste time, right? And so I prioritize things that are actually very important. So I think it's just, it's... I'm not a meninist, and I. if you don't have kids, I'm totally fine with that. But I do think, for me, getting married, having kids, increasing my responsibility by starting side hustles at this point, it just made me a better man. It made me a kinder person. It made me a better broadcaster in so many ways. It's just about calendar management. You can do so much more than you think because your capacity increases as you increase your responsibilities. Yeah. And I'm mostly fully in agreement with you there that, and this is why on on Twitter, I'm not always on a rampage, but I do bring it up that men need to look for a relationship that's going to lead to a marriage because ultimately it's going to lead to more good men out there, more men who you know have their priorities straight, more men who have that level of responsibility in their lives. And I understand it's a two-way street. Men need to find a, a woman to, to settle down with that you're compatible with and, and, and all of that. And I know that's getting more and more difficult. Um, Here's what I would say. I read the book Mate by Tucker Max yeah. years ago. And it was like the era of the pickup artist. And I had gotten divorced. My divorce anniversary is in like a week for 10 years, which happened on a podcast. You can hear myself get divorced. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. You go to the archives. You have to be a patron member, but you can go back to the last episode in February of 2014. And that I'm talking and then I go silent. And that's because that's the night my wife left because she was ticked wow. that I had. I was having a vulnerable conversation with Gina on her podcast. And she's like, you won't even talk to me. This is it. I'm out. We didn't have a great relationship. But all that to say, like what I was like the classic nice guy, like Women won't date me because I'm nice. 
all that bull crap. And really what listening to that show, it just was like, no, you're fat. You don't put in hard work on anything. You don't make the effort. You're, you treat women poorly. You do these things. It, it, it turned that all those years of Republican and libertarian, no personal responsibility never really got turned inward on me. And I really, I mm-hmm. went to therapy, went for four years as a result of that book and Scary Close by Donald Miller. And I, I cannot, that's the thing that guys have to do is they have to go, you know what? Women aren't dating me because I'm not dateable. I'm not in shape. I'm not taking care of my business. I'm not, why would anybody want to date me? Cause I'm just, I'm just a pile of video game playing loserdom. <laughs> and yeah, that book I think really helped me a lot. Tucker Max's mate. So if you're a single guy out there, read that book and hit the gym. Yeah, if you're a single guy, read that book and don't go out and get yourself an AI girlfriend. That Please. would be something I would so log offline to begin with. Meet some people. <laughs> so let, let's talk about your BET stardom. Uh, I don't know if you're in line for any BET awards coming up, but uh, I, I may be host. Let's never rule that out. We don't know what could happen. <laughs> That's true. Don't put a limit on yourself. Let's not put a ceiling on it. So w- when did this? When did you debut? On, on Miss Pat settles it. Was that last year that happened? Yeah, sometime. I still think it's 2023, but sometime late 23. But late 22, I get a phone call or an email or something saying, hey, would you like to audition for a TV show? And I thought, yeah. And then I meet with this guy who is perfectly nice in a very nondescript office with a filing cabinet behind him. And he's talking about a judge show and Miss Pat might be involved. And it was perfectly reasonable that this could be a setup, that I was being defrauded in some way, shape, or form. And I, you you hadn't talked about this with Miss Pat. No, she hadn't mentioned it. Dion hadn't mentioned it, and I thought that was weird. And so I'm like, I'm being pranked. So I did the audition, and they liked me. And the week before I flew out, I texted Pat's assistant and said, "Is Pat going to L.A. next week?" Before I give this guy my flight information. And she said, yes. I was like, okay. And then when I got there, they were all surprised that I was there. Um, But I had to audition. I made it through the audition. She had recommended a bunch of different people. I made it through the audition. Um, I made it through to the pilot and then did well in the pilot and made it through there. And I think the initial thing, I was literally the first day of filming the only white male in the entire room, right? (laughs) Chris, it's black entertainment television. Exactly, right? Every other channel's white television. So they they were literally about having me on, but I think it was like a good hook. It's produced by the people that do Jersey Shore, so it was really just top-notch, well done. And I think the angle with me was, oh, he's the white guy. But Pat knows me so well, and I will say the Libertarian Current Events podcast and the emotional stuff that we've talked about in the past, that kind of really helped because now when I was in there doing the actual episodes, they were like, oh, this guy isn't just a like a punchline. He's asking questions. He's reacting. So podcasting really helped with that. Whereas some of the influencer folks struggled and because they didn't do like real life things. But yeah, I, I was totally surprised. And then BET is tweeting out my face and pictures of me. And I'm just like, I just think it's all bizarre and crazy. But it's like a huge honor to have been selected and then to go and do well and do six episodes 
to, to get those compliments for the skill of doing that has been huge for my confidence in broadcasting skills. Yeah, it was a ton of fun, but Miss Pat settles it. Long story short, Miss Pat plays like a Judge Judy with mm-hmm. real cases, and she settles real cases between just crazy people. Wait, and they're real cases? They're, they're real cases. She's solving real... It's real money, too. It's not made up. I don't know that. Yeah. They go and find crazy people to do these cases, and then there's a celebrity jury and me, and I am in the jury box sitting next to Ray J. <laughs> Oh man, that is so. W- when you filmed it, was it just like you're out there for a week and you've knocked out the six episodes and that was it? Three days in Atlanta, and it was really interesting because there were a couple points where you're very pampered. There are a couple points where I was like, I could see exactly why people really fall into wanting to do this because, and then becoming like totally self absorbed, mm. constructing their own reality where everybody caters to them and they think that government should make this that way for them. It was like such a crazy fun experience and just the most talented people, like from the makeup artist to the floor people, it's like everything's like plywood, but it looks amazing. <laughs> I don't know. It's just yeah. bizarre. Yeah. Great learning experience too, but that's a really interesting point on people from Hollywood, obviously becoming self-absorbed, but like an angle to that, like from a libertarian perspective, like living out values as a libertarian, of course, these Hollywood types are not libertarians, they're liberal, right. but they still have the same viewpoint that we need to lift up the poor, we need equity. So you would think if they're going to live out their values, they would let that person who's making $50 a day go in front of them. They would encourage, they would insist upon it, but- yeah. Probably that's not what happens. I, and and I'm not guess, saying so this I, was an inequitable set but, and nobody there was like, I don't want to like lose opportunities because I, it sounds like I'm picking on them. But right, it, right. I'm not trying to, to put you out of work here. Chris. No, I think it's one of those deals where it's people who they've worked with in the past feel the obligation. Like they feel they have to do that to keep everybody yeah. happy where the people on Miss Pat settles it. Pat doesn't play that game. Like you are, mm-hmm. you you treat everybody with respect and she's only going to have people around that do respect people, but you get the vibe like, all right, this is where are they living out their values and where is it performative? Now yeah. I will say I did learn something about unions that I like, it was a lesson. Again, it's putting yourself in those situations where you may not, it may not support your biases. Like I work in radio. And when I worked in radio from 2004, there were 13 people working on my AM station. When I left in 2008, there were two people left on that station. Fast forward to 2024, there's zero people and it's in a closet. Like the industry has been completely shrunk. Now, when you look at a set like that, everybody there is protected by unions. I had to sign a document that basically said I won't go work on any other SAG thing or else something happens or I have to join SAG, right? And I had a conversation with a guy who's, it was during the strike. He said, SAG is the, the Screen Actors Guild. Right. Correct. Yeah. Even though I wasn't acting and it wasn't, nobody was writing, it was, you could still do the show. He's like, yeah, look at your industry where you have no union and look at mine. And I went, oh, okay. Because these people who have tons of money in these studios don't want to pay guys like him doing cinematography any money. Right. It was, that was a little interesting point too. Okay. I see why there's unions and maybe I could be a little more favorable to the private unions, public unions. No, mm-hmm. no. 
Exactly. Yeah, that's the the real world experience. When, when you see it with your own eyes, you interact with a person who is who's, who's living it out. It, it really does have the opportunity to change your, your perspective contrasted to being on Twitter and people just angrily tweeting back and forth at each other. There's very, a very small opportunity for learning anything from those interactions. I just think so, like social media and you've seen the libertarian movement change. I think you're more favorable to it. I'm still like a classical liberal, believes liberal, democratic capitalism's good. Like, I'm not saying you don't. I was on Mark's, just not to cut you off, but because I I don't even know where I fall right now. I I was on Mark's show last week, and he asked me about where I am politically. I I don't even know what I would call myself right now. I I don't even think that federal elections really matter. It's it's (laughs) not going to matter. It's just a different person being controlled by the money. So no matter no matter what we do, it's it's not gonna it's not gonna wake up one day and vote for all the right people and we'll be free and everyone will be living in this uh, libertarian utopia. That's never gonna happen. Sure, should we pay attention to elections for our school board and our mayors and our city councils? Yeah, that that could really help you. You could have an impact. But when it comes to this other stuff, I I just don't. It's hard for me to get excited about it, other than for pure entertainment. Yeah, I think it's it's something you need to be informed just as a rule. But I was talking with Nichols about this today because he was talking about when I went on Dave Smith in 2018. He's I could hear your shift away from the libertarian movement then. Mm-hmm. And and it really started 2017, 2018 for me. Have you seen the movie Big Fish? Like I think so. I you think and I, McGregor? Is there a book too? I think I read the yeah. book. Which So, okay, yeah. you know, I, I just realized, uh, like, along the way doing We Are Libertarians, like, we're not making progress. And then when I started doing Robert's show, none of these elites knew who I was, had any idea what the Libertarian Party thought. They didn't care, like, all the work say, I put is into Chris it. Angle from We Are Libertarians. Oh, my I can't gosh. believe I'm getting to meet you. I read your dreams. tweets. It's actually the opposite, where I've had to work hard to repair a reputation as a person who isn't silly and aggressive and mean and a troll um, from those like 2012 to 2016 years to be taken seriously, to get clients and to like network. Mm -hmm. But um, what I learned is that we focus too much on government as libertarians. We think too much about government and we think too much about issues and people and situations that we cannot control. And the important thing for us is to shrink our field of vision. And so if you're going to make change, there's three fundamental ways to do it if you're an individual to express that. There is starting a business, using profit Mm -hmm. to make change, working within the government to decrease or increase force to make change. And then there's civil society, which is using compassion to solve problems. And far too few libertarians use compassion as a means for change. And they need to shrink their vision to the hundred people that matter in their life and then serve that circle of people. And so if you've seen the movie Big Fish, when Ethan Hawke is carrying his father to release him into the river, all the hundred characters from the movie are there saying goodbye to him. It's Mm. the people that are going to be at your funeral that matter. It isn't if your kid, if their memory of you is like this because you're talking on Twitter to other libertarians and man, you've got a hundred thousand followers and you've, who gives a, who cares? Right. It's how can you, can you start a business? Can you start a nonprofit? Can you start a community group? Can you start just being a better dad or mom? Right. 
I've got a friend who's a social worker in a school and says that the majority of the kids that are in her school for the last decade have signs of neglect. They're from two parent households, have good families. It's not a matter of like class or race or anything. It's just this. It's just the phone. Yeah. And we have confused this with reality instead of and, and we have confused Donald Trump versus Joe Biden versus whatever, whoever the libertarians and RFK and who are these? None of this matters in your life. All you can control is your hundred people, like making their life better, serving them. And so I have just let that fundamentally change me and my show. And that's, we talk so much more about charity and like, I was the first libertarian podcast to ever do a show on homelessness. I looked all through the directory. I tried to find anybody that ever had done a show on that. And nobody had ever broached that subject or talked about it because it doesn't get clicks. My numbers are far less from where they were five years ago because I'm talking more about community solutions and focusing on civil society and building a good education for your kids and not who's a demon and why should we oppose them. And that's fine if that's what you do. And that that's going to get you way more traction. But is that really going to serve you, serve your audience, serve people around you? It was it was 2020 when I just realized I had to get out of it. We had, I brought Ryan Lindsay in who was a liber, libertarian socialist. Cause I was like, I don't understand these people. They didn't exist before 2018. They were like 14. I don't understand them either. Uh, and so I wanted to understand it and make a relationship with somebody to understand what they're thinking. I learned a lot from him and, but I would let him post because he would get like a million clicks, like literally a million on our Facebook page. Cause it would just tick so many libertarians off. Cause he'd talk mm. about social justice. And I just started like looking through the comments and I just made a decision to pull him off. And I said, Ryan, this isn't good for you. It's not good for me. Like emotionally. And it's not good for the people that we're feeding. So I'm taking everybody's access away. And we just haven't done Facebook since as a brand. That's interesting. You bring that up. And I was having a conversation on Twitter, I think earlier today on this, on, on outrage porn and outrage porn goes both directions, right? There's the people who like, like libs of TikTok who are (laughs) right. Trying, trying to expose the, the left, um, through, through their outrage. Where where do you see trans content? Do you see trans content on conservative pages or do you see trans content, John, because you follow trans pages? Because that's what you want. No, and, that, and, that, and that's right? and that's my point. So it's 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 it distorts the topic, and it's it, it's not ultimately it's not good because it gets people very worked up and very angry, and, and I think it skews perspective. Yeah. Not to say that there isn't a a trans agenda, but it skews the perception. I think of how how big it is right. and how impactful it is. So how are you going to take that? How are you going to take that? And how does that actually affect your family? This is the exercise that I constantly do. How Mm -hmm. does this actually affect my kids? How does this, what is the application of my values? And so I've been on on a mission to think about what I actually believe because I have to teach values to children now. And when I see all this stuff, I just roll my eyes because it's not that there aren't activists trying to do this stuff. You're talking to a person who is the third host in history of a trans podcast, right? Because Maya, one of our co-hosts, became trans, and I was like, I want to understand this. Let's talk about this. Let's put this on the mm-hmm. air. It wasn't that I totally supported the decision. 
it was that I just wanted to understand maybe less, more people would ask questions, more people to understand by me asking dumb questions. But it, like for me, the application was, do I just be as horribly cruel to a person who has a lot of mental challenges, emotional challenges, or do I treat them with love, try to understand them, try to figure this out? And when it comes to a lot of the stuff that happens at schools or choices that you make, make the best choices for your kids. Stop trying to control everybody else's kids because you can't. Like mm-hmm. You have to look at the application. What content are you going to choose for you and your kids? What? How are you going to spend your time? What's our relationship with our phones? Where's the application of these things, right? And if you take the emotion out of it and start to look at the application – all of the sudden, the vitriol, the anger, the John, I was having like stroke headaches in 2021 because I was just so angry and so amped up and so into politics. And, and like my doctor was like, your blood pressure is 170 over 130. Like <laughs> we you have mm-hmm. to do something differently and stepping back from politics and starting to look only at the application I'm at a steady 120 over 80, right? Like, it's just a much more peaceful life. So let's talk about that because that really the reason, not the only reason, but the reason that got me thinking about bringing you on the show was what we're going to talk about now, which I think is a really, of course, I'm saving it for last when everyone else has already turned this off and no one's listening to us. Just kidding, of course. My listeners always listen to 100% of the episode all the way through. But I want to talk about a project you have building a local community around podcasting. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in it because I think it's I think it's potentially very powerful and I think it potentially could evolve into really what we see more of in the future with podcasting. So if you could talk a little bit more about your idea and I think it's is it in partnership with a, a nonprofit in Indianapolis or not, not yet. I am. Yeah, I got into this program called Builders and Backers, which is redemptive entrepreneurship. And it's by a group called Praxis. They're connected to Praxis. And there's a group of local entrepreneurs called the Indie Redemptive Labs. And what they wanted to do was find some money to put towards redemptive projects. So the idea is like Christian businesses doing redemptive work as opposed to exploitative or ethical work, right? Me letting Ryan Lindsay post to get clicks is exploitative. Okay, let's take that away. I almost did the middle finger. Mm -hmm. Let's think about how I can do my podcast as a ethical podcast, which I've tried to do since 2020, 2021. Now let's take that a step further. Now, how are you actually interacting with people in a redemptive way? How can I use my podcast to be redemptive? What's the problem that I have felt that you feel, I'm sure, mm-hmm. over the last 20 years of broadcasting, I have felt intense loneliness from audiences. There are people in your inbox and my inbox that are journaling because they feel a connection to us, because they feel that parasocial relationship where they have built a connection and a friendship with you, but you don't know them at all, right? Mm-hmm. And some people, this is the reason I do not like Donald Trump, is that when you have lived that life, you know how to manipulate and abuse those people for your own self-interests. Or you can build those people up and be redemptive. So what I realized over the last year is, I'm like, why am I depressed about my podcast? 
And it was because 2020 killed the trips to Porkfest in 2018 with you guys. It killed the pool yeah. parties. It killed the in-person podcasting. It killed the community. Facebook took our group away, which completely killed the brand in, in so many ways. It Once that community was taken away, and I no longer felt I had a place in the libertarian movement because it was made very clear to people that are, like, I'm a conservative libertarian, Ron Paul libertarian, but I don't hold certain beliefs so therefore we don't feel you belong here i just felt like i totally without a community and i got really lonely and depressed 21 and 22 and i started to try to think about why and it was because that in-person connection had stopped and that's why the growth had stopped for the show and so i've been doing podcast consulting auditing shows helping people launch shows and we always get to a point with these clients where it's just, they look at me and they go, is anybody listening? I know there's numbers. I see the downloads, but I don't feel like mm -hmm. anybody's there. And it just sparked with me, like the thing that is the glue for a podcast is in-person community. It is getting to see people in person. Even if it's like you guys, where you're just every once a year, twice a year, seeing all your different hosts that have been on Lions of Liberty. Right. That's enough to keep you guys glued together as a group other than Mark. And so there is a there's an idea here. Right. So what is that idea? Can like the loneliness crisis has exploded 300 percent increase in deaths of despair in 20 years. We have 16 only 16 percent of people feel connected to their local community. You have 30 more minutes of people alone than on average. That's before the pandemic, right? I don't have to go through it, but like some of the most shocking numbers are like millennials, 28% of them don't have a close, single close friend. Like It's just crazy. So why, how can we fix that? The reason that they don't have close friends that they say is shyness. People feel shy. Right. Mm -hmm. So can we use that parasocial relationship that we've built with our audiences to invite people to live shows and do live podcasts in local areas? Can we start doing meetups for Lions of Liberty? You're a national show, but can you get your listeners to do local meetups in cities based? Look, we're just all fans of the show. Let's meet in person and start building some friendships around this show that we love. You don't even have to be there. It's just you're facilitating yeah. those relationships. You, the way the reason Lions of Liberty and We Are Libertarians always got together and and worked together so is that we had similar mindsets in growth, in audience, in style, and it was always like, how big can we take this? How big can I get We Are Libertarians? Can we be the next big media company? And I realized to get to be the next big media company is actually you have to be unethical to do it. You have to yeah. do and things and you say You probably got to take libertarian out of your name also. Yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, you have to, or you can be libertarian and just go for the hardest core audience. And that's just not me, right? Like I would have to yeah. lie to my audience to get there, right? So what's the redemptive path? Let's think smaller. Let's get podcasters thinking local and in person, right? Stop thinking like, I want to be the next Joe Rogan, and how can I take my podcast and build local community around me, right? Even if you're in a rural city, like a rural part of the state, can you find five other people who are into gaming that want to do a podcast with you, right, in, in your 
tri-county area, right? And if you're in Indianapolis, there's a game store, right? There's two game stores within five minutes of me. They'll totally have you host a podcast. I've been going out for three weeks trying to find venues to put into a directory. I have not had one no. I've had every single small business, co-working spaces, event spaces, and restaurants all say, yes, we we are so excited for this idea of hosting you to do a live podcast or a meetup. Most of them are totally free. It's just they are struggling too to get people in their door. So if you can bring 15 people in, we Libertarians used to have 50 people show up to our live shows at the comedy club. And we didn't have that big of an audience. Can we, can podcasters lead the way in terms of building in-person community as a way to end the loneliness crisis? I think we can. And it's for one simple reason. Podcasters, the way that millennials and Gen Z and everybody under 40 now sort themselves is not by location, it is not eth- ethnically, it is not by family, it is by interest. Social media has forced us to sort our friendships by interest, and we've done it on social media, and we all realize that's a toxic stew. And so SiriusXM just put out a study two weeks ago that said people are turning to podcasts, and they feel eight times happier. They have five times the mental health feelings of positive mental health compared mm-hmm. to social media. Let's take advantage of that. Let's start finding ways to build communities if you've got a big brand like you or i have can we start getting people to meet in person like just find a restaurant and meet up right like you have the power to influence your audience to do that and it it just it's hard to explain if you're not interacting with these big audiences like we are to people how lonely everybody is but everybody goes i wish i had one or two more friends something's missing Mm -hmm. and I'm a, I go to a church, I'm religious, I've got churches and I've got options. But if in this increasingly secular society, how do people make friends? You move from Pittsburgh to Indianapolis and you don't know me, how are you going to make friends? You don't, where would you go? Yeah. A bar? I don't even know like how to make friends as an adult. Right. Like, am I just going to walk up to some random guy like, hey, you want to? I've been, I, I hate it. I mean, you're exactly right though. Like when you do go to church, joining Bible studies, like that's what I've connected and and made friends at at this age, but also through, through your kids, kids, sporting events, things like that. That's ways to make friends. But yeah, a lot of people out there, obviously that's not an option. Maybe they're single or or they're just not at that, that point in their life. So I, I think one, one thing that I remember so well about these in person events that we've gone to pork fest or we used to go to the you know, libertarian libertarian conventions back in the day and coming away from those events was always so energized yeah and you'll meet people who were listening to your show or or just not necessarily even talk about the show just talk about life get to know people and there would be so much energy that would come into that and I would come back into podcasting and I would have a renewed energy to yeah. to really put more into it because you have that connection yeah and what was the phrase that you always heard what what was the phrase that you would always hear from people i heard it all every single time wow i don't feel alone other people think like i do you don't Mm -hmm. know what it's like right this is born also out of the libertarian party of indiana experience i love the lpin i love a lot of the people that i met through the libertarian party i have nothing bad to say about the libertarian party 
per se, <laughs> right? I don't think it's any better or worse than any Republican or Democratic parties, right? I definitely align with them. I'll vote for them. But at the end of the day, the impact that it made when I was running it at a fairly successful period of the LPI's history, we were a great social club. We didn't make a lot of impact on policy. We didn't make any impact politically, but man, we built a lot of great relationships. And I love traveling to Peru to sit and talk with five other guys about libertarianism and then to watch these groups kind of form. It's beautiful. And it's all around that common interest of wanting to make a difference. Those And every time we had one of those events or had a convention or went to a convention, it was, man, I'm not the only one that thinks this way, right? And uh, everybody's got something they're nerdy about, and they should just not be ashamed of being nerdy about it. Start a podcast and think of your podcast as a way to do networking events. It's content marketing to do networking events. Have icebreakers, just meet at a bar, chit chat, have picnics with families, right? There's, this doesn't have to be that hard. And nobody else knows how to make friends either, John. I've had to go, I've had to try and find clients because I'm, we're a, my wife's a stay at home mom. I'm the breadwinner. So I've had to go out and find more clients. So I've been going to networking events for the last six months and I freaking hate it. I hate it because when I walk in, I'm awkward. I don't know anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. I got into broadcasting to be awkward and nerdy. But you know what? I realized at one on Friday, I was watching other people interact And they were all bad at it, too. (laughs) Everybody else is thinking the same thing. So you just got to get over it. Yeah. There's a reason why when you find yourself in an awkward situation, in an elevator, or standing in the line, when people bring up the weather, bring up these mundane things, it makes people feel comfortable. These are natural icebreakers. I used to be like, complain about it to my wife later. This person just wanted to talk about the weather. But and it was actually, I just had Anthony Samerhoff on my show recently, and he was the one that introduced me to this topic where you have to understand that when that person is talking about these you know, mundane things or things that you think really have no relevance, um, they're just trying to start a conversation. They're sti- trying to start a, start a dialogue, and that's their way of bringing some comfortability to that conversation. Once you understand that, it's just two humans interacting getting to know each other yeah i think the impulse for us libertarians to like always be edgy or to eschew anything that's popular or like it's like really a cynicism and that's what i've Mm -hmm. grown that's i think the thing that has caused me to say i don't want to serve the libertarian movement or even know what's going on with it is the cynicism like the crushing hopelessness of being a libertarian now of how why even bother when the world economic forum is just going to crush us all under our feet Mm. Where it's, I love Javier Malay just going in there and going, here's our values, and I'm not going to apologize. And taking what's popular and not wanting to talk about it and constantly crapping on it. And, oh, the Super Bowl halftime is always going to be horrible. I know what you're going to say. It's horrible. That's so predictable, right? You love talking about the Super Bowl halftime It's show. just every, like every one year. of those things that every year, every stupid person who is not clever who thinks they're interesting craps on the super bowl halftime last year's was bad but then the one before that was good right like mm-hmm. you can have an opinion other than they're all bad right it's just cynical 
and it doesn't endear you to people. And it's exactly what you're saying. It's like, you don't always have to be different. It doesn't make you interesting always. Sometimes it just makes you an a-hole and it prevents you from actually having conversations where you're feeling each other out to see, do we have common interest? And do Mm -hmm. I trust you to be vulnerable with you to find and go deeper in learning about those interests and then about our true selves? Like it's, I think it's just when next time somebody asks you how you're doing, don't say good, give an honest answer. Like I'm, I'm really tired because I have a seven month old. And then that all of a sudden that opens up conversations about your seven month old and, Oh yeah, I had that with my kids. And so I think that impulse, I really had to kill that, that, that was so bred into me by being a libertarian is that cynical hatred of anything. It's bred in circuses, John. It's just bread and circuses, yeah. <laughs> but maybe sports is the glue to get you to lubricate some conversation with another guy. Exactly. And you're just a pussy because you don't want to have conversations <laughs> real, with other men. The real bread and circuses is politics really yeah, right. in, the, in the modern day. But yeah, so let, let's one more question here, Chris. And to harken back to the beginning of the show, when you were talking about the first podcast you listened to loading them on your iPod, for those of you out there who don't know, that's where the name podcast comes from because it was on they were on iPods. But I, I remember the first podcast I ever found, and I think I listened to it through or through the computer. It wasn't even on an iPod. It was just something that that I had to download to listen to. And it was a, a Pittsburgh Pirates podcast. <laughs> and it was some guy who was very drunk talking about the Pirates. <laughs> And he had to end the podcast early because he spilled his rum and coke on his whatever he was recording. With. I miss that stage of podcasting so much more than. <laughs> but yeah, but I but I listened to that. I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> I don't know why I was so drawn to it. I was like, this is just some guy talking. Yeah. And, and I found it and I listened to it. And I remember telling my friends about it and they're like, sounds weird. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But it's interesting that that connected with me. And yeah. it seems like you had a, a similar experience with your first podcast and wanting more of that content. So what I'm curious about is obviously podcasting has come a long way. We've come through 2020, 2021, where everyone had a podcast and then 90% of those people who started those podcasts stopped and we're coming out on the, the other end of that. We're still, there are a lot of new podcasts coming out every single day, but what is the future of podcasting that you see? Do you see a future of podcasting that does maybe trend more towards a localized focus or do you see any common themes emerging in the uh, next five, 10 years? Yeah, I think it has to go more local. I was talking, I had a client call today. I'll I'll plug his show, Paradox. His wife does a podcast and I want to make sure that I honor this by saying it's Andy's mom, losing a child, always Andy's mom. And Eric Larson does Paradox. Uh, Eric Larson. Yeah, I was yep. going to say, I recognize his yep. name Paradox. Yeah, Eric's, Eric's been on the show. He's a good guy. Yeah, he's on our network. He's a great guy. His wife does this show. They lost their, their son uh, years ago, and she was started looking for a podcast about grief and losing a child, and there wasn't mm-hmm. one. And so she started one and has built this incredibly healing, awesome community around that podcast, mm-hmm. right? And as somebody who does this with clients every day, if you go and search your nerdy interest, there's maybe one or two podcasts. Maybe there's, if your interest is like the Indiana Pacers, like mine, there's 10 podcasts. 
And they're usually driven by like some ad driven podcast network that's going to collapse next year. (laughs) And we've seen this. How many people in the libertarian space have come and gone, right? But I Mm -hmm. used to keep a running list of every libertarian podcast on a single page just as to serve the libertarian movement at libertarianpodcast.com. And it just eventually got too big to do that. There were too many because the interest grew larger and larger. And then you get centralization. And now I don't know of other libertarian. I think Tom Woods is still doing his. I'm doing mine. You're doing yours. Dave Smith, obviously. There's the guy at the backwards hat. But that's like the ones I can name, right? Like it just doesn't Mm -hmm. seem like there's as many people doing libertarian podcasts as there used to be. And that opens up opportunity because like, why do we have four, like 87,000 books on Lincoln? Because it's always going to be of interest to talk about that topic. There's always going to be something new to explore in the context of the modern day. And this is just going to keep going, right? Like it's not, mm-hmm. uh, there's always like a death to the podcasting article. There's one yesterday on semaphore about the shrinking podcast stuff. It's not going away. It's only going to grow because if you look at 2014, 30% of people listen to a podcast once in their lives. Now it's 64%. In 10 years, that's going to be 90%. And that's going to be a tremendous amount of new ears that are listening. And it's like blogs or YouTube. Would you ever say to anybody, don't start a YouTube channel because there's just too many? No, you get in on it because it's centralized and there's a search and people want to create content. The problem is there's so much good content. You've probably seen it on your end. It's become a lot harder in the last two years to do these independent podcasts than it was 2016. Where oh, yeah. We were it, right? There were, uh, it, There's now major massive budgets being put into podcasts doing national content. So just thinking like a free marketer, where are those independent podcasters going to start Mm -hmm. to think, right? Because the money, follow the money. You and I have both tried to monetize these national networks. It's hard to find clients and we don't hit a certain economic like download point to get the to the advertisers that we need. But man, I'm watching local podcasts like the Boss Hog of Liberty get sponsorships left and right. And so I'm going... Okay, if these local podcasts can walk into a place and get real partnerships and get $12,000 a year for a title sponsor, and now all of a sudden I'm moving over here to focus on this because they're, I can get my podcast paid for. So I just think in terms of the competition for ears and the lack of dollars that can be made in a broad sense but can be made on a local level, you're going to see a shift towards local content and people trying to be influencers in their town, their counties, their cities. So I, I think local is going to be an important thing. I think video is just going to become more and more important. So many people watch on YouTube now. So I think you've got to be doing video. But I'm betting, I'm trying to think like what's five years from now, everybody's going to be doing in-person stuff. Because what's the next frontier for podcasters? We've done audio. We're doing video. We've got the monetization pieces in subscriptions are starting to wear out. There's everybody always in an industry like this tries to innovate. And what's the place that nobody's innovating in local in person. And so if you can be in person and local and be first in, 
now you've got a great position like we have in the libertarian space because we were first in. And then other guys came and ate my lunch. I don't know about yours because they were fueled by bigger networks, but they just like be the 800 gorilla of Indianapolis or Pittsburgh, <laughs> right? Be yeah. there five years before everybody else. So that's, I, that's where my head is at with it. No, I think you're, I think you're spot on. And especially so with the innovation of podcasting going, you have to have video now. I don't think I know anybody that's a podcast that doesn't have video. And yeah, what's the next natural step? And I, I used to think that, I don't know for how long I thought this, but I used to think that local businesses would be starting their own podcasts and that would be a method for them to bring people through the door. But Really, I, I think it's solidified for me today and talking with you today. That's not the path for local businesses to bring people in the door. The path is to partner with podcasts yeah. and bring those people in who know what they're doing rather than having an, ex, an additional expense where they're having to buy equipment and all this and have someone on their staff who knows what they're doing. They can just outsource that to a podcaster, local podcaster, and bring them in and everybody wins. So, yeah, there was a local down in Bloomington, huge food town. I use their. I just did a had a conversation with them. They're a food podcast, and they're sponsored by the local CVB. That mm-hmm. that's an easy ask, right? And the C everybody wants to do a podcast. It's like blogging, two thousand and five. It's like YouTube. It's social media, two thousand and ten. Everybody knows they need to do something. Facebook ads aren't working the same way for businesses. Google ads aren't working the same way. The cookie situation is destroying that market. They don't really know where to put their ad dollars. And Mm -hmm. so they can, and you're not going to charge them nearly what they're spending on all that other stuff. I've not had a client that I've worked with that didn't get sponsorship because they know someone in their network willing to take a risk on the small amount of money that person is asking for their podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Like the other thing with corporations is there's always like an old guy in the structure that doesn't quite get it. So they don't want to spend money on the equipment. But they might be talked into $2,000 for advertising. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I you can also just, through these networking events, you never know who's going to be a fan of your show. Brian Nichols has had some really crazy successful people come up to him at some of these things and go, I love your show. How can I get involved? So, yeah, you get me started talking on podcasting. Like I always loved, I liked libertarianism, but like for me, it was always building. We are libertarians. That was as exciting as anything we were ever talking about. Yeah, I won't take up any more of your time today, Chris. This has been an awesome conversation. We both have our families to get back to and dinner to eat. At least I do on my side. I'm getting I'm starving here. Yeah. So let's do the plugs. And tell everyone where they can find your stuff, and then I'll send you on your way. Yeah, everything linked at chris-spangle.com. And then look up my name in the podcast directories. Please check out the Chris Spangle Show. I'd love for you to come check us out again. (laughs) And then the podcasting and platforms, if you found this helpful, that's my podcasting show. And then the pat down. All right, Chris Spangle, thank you for coming on Finding Freedom. Thank you for having me, John. All right, guys, that was another awesome show with the guest today, Chris Spangle. Went on longer than I planned, but just a great conversation talking about podcasting, talking about the future of podcasting. Really interesting story that Chris has. Very unique how he's been able to parlay his podcasting into different avenues of success. Getting on BET for one as a white man. Very, very cool stuff. And definitely check out 
all of Chris's stuff, of course, it'll be linked to on the show notes, show notes page as well at uh, lionsofliberty.com. For today's show, that is really all I have. I'll just remind you one more time, one more time to subscribe. Subscribe to the Lions of Liberty Podcast Network if you want to get all three of our shows. If you want just this show, Finding Freedom, you can find just Finding Freedom on any podcasting platform. Losing the ability to talk here at the end by searching Finding Freedom and John Odermatt, and it'll pop right up. With that being said, I'll be back next week with another awesome interview. In the meantime, always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.